land expropriation. More than two million dunams of land, more than one third of the West Bank, has been taken from Palestinians using a variety of different legal tools. Our report goes into excruciating detail about each legal mechanism to explain the ways in which the Israeli government has stolen land from Palestinians to give it to settlements. It is also worth noting that this system of land expropriation has reduced Palestinians to living in 165 non-contiguous territorial islands. This is a result of the mass expropriation of Palestinian land. That's Umar Shakur, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Umar Shakur on Israel-Palestine, a threshold crossed. Thirty years ago, the Oslo Accords between Israelis and Palestinians were signed. There was widespread fanfare and jubilation. There was Clinton standing between Robin and Arafat, bringing them together at the White House. It was a new dawn, finally peace in the Holy Land. The pundits and the Poles told us it was a miracle. Where is that miracle today? The chance of a viable independent Palestinian state has become a pipe dream. Israeli oppression of Palestinians is not random, but systemic. Land, which was to be part of a Palestinian state, has been seized for Israeli-only settlements. Meanwhile, Washington enables Israeli policies. While there has been some shift in U.S. public opinion, the ruling political class ignores the realities on the ground. Our guest today is Umar Shakur. He's the Israel-Palestine Director of Human Rights Watch. He's the author of that organization's report, A Threshold Crossed. Prior to working for Human Rights Watch, he was a fellow at the Center for Constitutional Rights. He investigated human rights violations in Egypt, including the Rabah massacre. I talked with Umar Shakur in May at the University of Denver. After our interview, Umar Shakur spoke to students and faculty at the University of Denver. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start with the working definition of human rights. Human rights are um, what international law defines as the basic freedoms that all people around the world, regardless of who they are, where they come from, should enjoy. They include basic civil and political rights, uh, you know, the right to free expression, free assembly, free association, the right to live free from the unjustified interference of government force. They obviously also include very critical socioeconomic rights, uh, you know, right to health. Uh, you know, there's an increasing body of work on right to electricity. So this is what has developed over many decades in the lexicon of international law as the sort of baseline for what we should hold rights bearers, starting with governments, but not exclusive. This also applies to, you know, non-state groups increasingly being applied to companies, to international organizations. It's the basic re requirements that the law sets out whenever it comes to the well-being freedoms uh, of individuals. In the media, human rights is like a political football there are uses and abuses of it. Talk about that. Absolutely. I think the problem with 
he, how human rights watch is dis, human rights in general is discussed globally is that it's often weaponized when one side of an argument wants to put down the other side well you're a human rights record here you're a human rights record there and i think human rights watch's starting point is to say look we don't take political positions even on war and uh, occupation we actually don't take positions one way or another we document abuses committed by all actors in the context not only of conflict but even normal ordinary situations so i think the key and this is a point human rights watch has made recently vis-a-vis ukraine uh is to say uh, it's fantastic that folks are mobilizing using the tools of international law and human rights as a way to push for accountability and fi- you know, addressing the situation on the ground. But the key to these instruments actually having any meaning and weight is that they're applied universally in all different contexts, regardless of the political considerations. December marks the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. That's a significant foundational document. Absolutely. It's certainly one of the key pillars uh, in the architecture of international law that led us to where we are today, where you have an entire apparatus of conventions, of customary international law that are protective of human rights, civil and political rights, prohibition against torture. You go down the list of different uh, laws, and I think the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was a critical piece of moving the world to a place in which human rights is at least enshrined in law. Now, in practice, they're not being protected in many, if not all parts of the world. And so the challenge for those of us in civil society is to take those words and to translate them into action. There's lots of lofty rhetoric coming from Washington about about human rights, yet the U.S. has a very mixed record, uh, particularly with its refusal to join the International Criminal Court, which ironically, it was, uh, you know, one of the original uh, propagators of establishing the ICC. Now, NPR said the U.S. has a complicated relationship, that's a direct quote, with the ICC. What's that about? Why isn't the United States, the bastion of human rights, a member of the ICC? I think when we talk about double standards in international law and human rights, I think the United States is at the top of the list of those that uh, are guilty. And I think their ICC approach is very indicative, right? When it comes to certain situations, whether it's Libya, whether it's Sudan, whether now it's with Ukraine and Russia, where the particular issue in front of the court is one that fits with the U.S. geostrategic geopolitical agenda for the region, they jump to defend these principles. But in other situations, in Israel-Palestine is by no means unique in this regard. You can look at Egypt, you can look at Saudi Arabia, you can look at numerous other examples around the world where the uh, human rights principle-based call do not line up with U.S. interests. Too often the United States is on the wrong side of this. So in the case of the ICC, yes, we've seen them make references to uh, particular indictments, most recently of Vladimir Putin in Ukraine. There are anecdotes before that of Sudan and Libya, where the United States has directly, if not directly, indirectly been on the side of supporting the ICC and defending it. But just a few years ago, the Trump administration issued sanctions against the prosecutor of the International you know, Criminal Court. And that was in part over the decision to open a formal probe into serious crimes committed in Palestine. That's not the only example, but it goes to show you, again, the ICC has become the foremost or one of the foremost examples that amplify the double standard in the United States government's approach to human rights and international law and accountability. Double standards. Uh, Critics say adversarial states like Iran, Syria, 
Russia, China, Cuba, North Korea, Venezuela, and others are held by the U.S. to one set of standards, while U.S. allies, such as Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, India, Turkey, and Israel, are given basically a free pass. How does Washington get away with that? I think that's a great question, but undeniably that's largely accurate. I mean, the reality here is that the United States has strong rhetoric. When you look at human rights abuses in certain contexts, you mentioned Iran, Venezuela. Um, I think largely if you take the Ukraine, uh, if you took the very same kinds of statements, pronouncements, actions in some of those contexts and applied them in others, that's exactly what human rights organizations have been calling for. But the United States has not been consistent. And that, I think, not only undermines U.S. credibility, you know, but I think more importantly, undermines those very international principles. Let me give you an anecdote. It's undeniable that the United States now and other countries are pushing, for example, for support from the global south when it comes to Ukraine. Uh, Similarly, when it comes to the indictment of Vladimir Putin and others, but many of these states are asking the question of, okay, you know, where were you when it comes to these abuses taking place in Palestine? And the lack of a good answer leads these states in many cases. Again, the, idea, the, the answer should be, yes, do it in Ukraine, also do it in Palestine. But for some states, they're, they're turning to no here. If it's not here, it's not there. And so I think it's not only undermining the U.S. credibility, which I think has been over many years undermined by their support for abusive regimes across the world, and they're overlooking, and in some cases, even greenlighting abuses, but it actually undermines those very principles, which also in turn means undermining protections of human rights everywhere. During the so-called war on terror, the U.S. has committed unambiguous war crimes, specifically the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, Abu Ghraib, the infamous collateral murder shooting of Iraqi citizens, the bombing of Afghan uh, wedding parties and Afghan civilians. I don't know if you saw this uh, excellent film about uh, Mohamedou Ould Salahi called The Mauritanian, about how he was... uh, you know, unlawfully and cruelly imprisoned for years and years. I mean, you have that black stain of uh, Guantanamo. There, there is no accountability. The U.S. has impunity when it comes to international law. I represented men detained in Guantanamo Bay, so I spent two years shuttling back and forth to the prison, so I know firsthand the horrors of unjust, arbitrary detention without trial or charge, of torture, what it's like for those men. I've met them. I've spoken with them. I've seen their conditions. I also have documented U.S. drone strikes. My first major human rights report that I worked on as as an advocate over a decade ago was about U.S. drone strikes in Pakistan. So I'm intimately aware not only of these really serious abuses of international law and human rights, but the fact that there's been no accountability. And one of the points that we make everywhere around the world is when there's impunity for serious abuses, you open the door to their recurrence. It's no coincidence that the lack of accountability for torture under the Bush administration created a situation where when a Trump comes to power, he can openly talk about uh, the possibility of torture. We still today in 2023 have men held in Guantanamo Bay. That is an absolute moral outrage. And I think it's critical uh, for all advocates of human rights to be consistent in their application, to call it out in the United States, just as you would call it out in Ukraine. And too often, there is a selective invocation of principles which undermines all of our work. The Arab Middle East is ruled by kings, sultans, emirs, and generals. What's the overall human rights situation in the region? 
it's quite poor. And I take this from somebody who, you know, the, uh, I've been kicked out of three, uh, not just Israel, putting Israel-Palestine aside, three other governments have blocked my entry over my human rights work, Syria, Egypt, and Bahrain. I've, I've been in Egypt. I've been in morgues documenting the killings of protesters by the Egyptian regime. I documented the Rabah massacre back in 2013. I lived in Syria before even the Arab uprising. It was looking, it was looking into contemporary issues. So undeniably, it, the situation of human rights abuse across the region is alarming. Uh, we've had a regression in many countries, even from the situation was looking like in 2010, you know, right before the advent of the Arab Spring. And that's built on impunity. There are abusive actors in the region that have committed serious abuses that are increasingly empowered, that are empowering one another, that are empowering regressive forces in these countries. And there's undeniably some degree of popular support there has been for some of this repression. Even where there is criticism, the constellation of power is such that uh, they're not able to, to challenge and push back always. Or when they do in places like Sudan uh, and elsewhere, they're subjected to really serious high degrees of violence uh, by the state and by, by state officials. So I think undeniably across the region, it's a really dark, challenging time for human rights. Well, let's focus on Egypt, generally regarded as the most important Arab uh, state. It's been described by Amnesty as an open-air prison, quote-unquote. There was a coup d'etat which overthrew a democratically elected government of Mohamed Morsi in uh, 2013. And you mentioned the Rabah massacre on August 14th, 2013. Uh, You investigated it. What happened there exactly, and what kind of numbers are we talking about? I mean, uh, we had one of the largest single-day killings of protesters in modern world history, something on the scale of, Tian- uh, scale of Tiananmen. We were there on that day. We were there in the days and weeks after interviewing victims and families. We were in the morgues. We were counting the bodies. We ourselves, in the span of 12 hours, we counted over 800 Egyptians that were gunned down on that day. We believe the actual number is likely well over 1,000, given ones that we weren't able to actually count. This was not some abstract situation where people went crazy. This was our reports called all according to plan. These killings were ordered at the highest level of the Egyptian government, signed off by folks including Abdel Fattah Sisi, that ordered the killings of protesters. They anticipated even more than the number that were killed. They opened fire on people that were, uh, you know, largely nonviolent. Uh, you know, even the government said the number of guns they found in Rabah with a protest that had tens of thousands of people was 15 on a press conference that night. So we're talking about really a a mass. Uh, you know, gunning down of, of, of protesters. It's a, it's, it is a dark stain, not only on Egypt, uh, but on the entire region. And uh, the fact that some of those very people who carried out that massacre not only have not been held to account, not only do they continue to hold in detention some of the people who survived that massacre, you know, but those people are now uh, entrenched in leadership in Egypt and continuing to double down on political repression, tens of thousands of political prisoners. It is, it is a uh, extremely alarming where Egypt is today. And that massacre took place during the Obama administration. What was uh, Barack Obama's position on what happened? There was some discussion within the U.S. government about, first of all, labeling what happened as a coup. Uh, This has been well documented in the reporting of David Kirkpatrick and others. There was some discussion about some sort of, uh, you know, uh, sanctioning of the Egyptian government. And in fact, years later, there were some minor pockets of funding that were conditioned or withdrawn or held back. But the overarching uh, 
message, and this has been followed by Trump and even Biden, right, has been to, to normalize this government, to not hold individuals accountable, to not uh, use U.S. leverage to put sufficient weight. Uh, you know, the U.S. considers Egypt to be an important ally, including on Israel-Palestine, and it it's willing to overlook and, uh, in effect, uh, you know, sanction um, these, the Egyptian government's repression. So what are the possibilities of Biden calling up General Sisi and getting those political prisoners, which I think number in the thousands, tens of thousands, tens of thousands uh, released? Biden talked about human rights being the center of, its, of, of their policy, uh, but that's not been the the, 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 the reality. In the Middle East has been the most stark. I mean, look across the way at Saudi Arabia and the, and the, and what happened with Jamal Khashoggi, what the uh, the administration said what happened in terms of accountability. We see it now with Shireen Abu Akhla and, you know, another U.S. citizen journalist gunned down in Palestine. We see it with Egypt. We don't see the United States actually putting their principles into actions. We don't actually see human rights watch, human rights being at the center of its policy. So I would love to say that the U.S. would put leverage, uh, you know, on Egypt. It's possible it's doing so in certain cases where there is a U.S. national uh, you know, we've seen that pattern, but that's a drop in the bucket compared to the overarching repression. And we're not seeing the U.S., I think, do enough. Historically, it's been difficult to talk about Israel critically uh, in the United States. Do you see that any shift in that? I think that the conversation is absolutely shifting. There are many data points to it, including survey data that's been conducted by many prominent polling organizations showing whether it's young people, whether it's Democrats, you know, whether it's Jewish Americans, shifts in public attitudes, increasing recognition of the reality uh, of apartheid. We also see that in the growing recognition of, these, of, of Israeli apartheid. We see now not only a consensus in the human rights movement that spans Israeli, Palestinian, global human rights organizations – Harvard Law School, International Human Rights Clinic, former UN, uh, current UN experts who have reached that assessment. We see prominent figure, Lawrence Tribe, the professor at Harvard. We see increasing voices that are recognizing the reality for what it is. And now governments. We have the entire South Africa, Namibia. We have countries like Indonesia, uh, Malaysia, the Human Rights Council last year. The entire African bloc, Arab bloc, and Organization of Islamic Conference use the word apartheid. So there is a growing recognition, including in the United States. Uh, but the challenge is now to – it's not yet penetrated the political level. You have some people in Congress, but not nearly enough, including within the Democratic Party. So there's much more work to be done. And then the, the next challenge is to translate that shift into changes on the ground. Well, criticism of Israel is uh, sometimes equated with uh, anti-Semitism. And anti-Semitism exists. It's increasing, in fact, unfortunately. Uh, so how do you separate those two and de-weaponize the labeling of criticism of Israel as anti-Semitism? So I think the first thing um, to, to say is that, uh, you know, anti-Semitism is a human rights issue. Uh, human Rights Watch has been involved and is involved in documenting and talking what, about what governments can do to deal with this issue. But the cynical attempt by supporters of the Israeli government to facilely equate criticism of Israel or advocacy with Palestinian rights with anti-Semitism actually undermines that fight against anti-Semitism. Last month, Human Rights Watch joined a number of other Israeli, Palestinian, American Jewish organizations, Amnesty International, and in calling for the UN to ensure that its important work to combat anti-Semitism does not result in the stifling of legitimate 
you know, free, free expression. In particular, we called on the UN not to adopt the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, a particularly a controversial definition that has been misused to muzzle advocacy for Palestinian rights and criticism of Israel. So that definition shouldn't be used. Anti-Semitism needs to be fought critically, but it needs to be done in a way that doesn't undermine uh, the right to free expression. IHRA is not the way to do it. There needs to be other ways to go. There have been reports of human rights abuses carried out by the Palestinian Authority in the areas under its control. But uh, what's happening there with the authority and human rights abuses? Undeniably, Palestinian Authority and Hamas authorities in Gaza have become increasingly thuggish. They are systematically arbitrarily arresting critics, opponents, dissidents, torturing many of those in custody. Human Rights Watch has been documenting this for decades. Uh, You know, we've done large reports showing that this is systematic practice, calling for same same sorts of remedies we call for with regards to abuses elsewhere in the world, including with the Israeli government, to to, uh, cut funding to abusive security forces, for there to be accountability, including at the International Criminal Court for states, to call out this reality for what it is and to ensure that they're not uh, you know, complicit in it. So uh, it's a huge part of the picture of the repression of Palestinians. And let me add that many of those that are locked up by the Palestinian authorities are the same people that are being locked up by the Israeli government. Uh, you know, and so in essence, the Palestinian Authority in some ways has become, uh, you know, in some ways complicit with apartheid and the underlying reality, especially when it comes to uh, the, the security coordination that it does that sometimes can result in this level of repression, it seems. So I think it's important to understand that, that when we're talking about human rights in Israel-Palestine, we're not just talking about abuses by the Israeli government. We're also talking about that by Hamas, by the PA, some of which is done in conjunction with the Israeli government and to serve the same uh, you know, underlying uh, you know, sort of uh, realities. And Palestinians ultimately are stuck between multiple authorities that are intolerant of uh, criticism and that are attacking them for their work. Finally, what can individuals do? I think individuals, the first thing is, you know, you've got to read up on what's happening. Make sure you're well equipped with the facts. Read the reporting of Palestinian groups, Israeli groups, human rights groups, share, promote that work. I would say, you know, and and I encourage people to talk to their elected representatives, but that's not enough. I think all of us need to look at our own institutions. Go to your church, go to your synagogue, go to your mosque, go to your union and make go to your university. Make sure that you are applying these same principles to your endowments, to your uh, activities, to your study patterns. The U.S. is deeply, uh, you know, deeply involved in, in, in apartheid. There needs to be a much larger way of due diligence to ensure non-complicity in these crimes. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Uma Shakur on Israel-Palestine, a threshold crossed. This is Independent Alternative Radio. To get copies of this program, call us at one 800 Triple four one nine seven seven. Again, that's one eight hundred triple four one nine seven seven. Or go online. Our website alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. After our interview, Uma Shaker spoke to students and faculty at the University of Denver. Let me start by saying I think probably if you're studying here affiliated with. The university, you're well aware of the work of Human Rights Watch. But when it comes to Israel-Palestine, we've been working on documenting human rights abuses by Israeli authorities, Palestinian authorities, armed groups, companies for well over 30 years. 
The impetus for this report probably began about six or seven years ago. Um, at the time, the occupation was getting ready to turn 50. We're now marking 56 years uh, of the occupation this year. And we were reflecting on the body of Human Rights Watch's work. Over the years, we've documented virtually every abuse of international humanitarian human rights law you can imagine. Whether it's the mass expropriation of Palestinian land, whether it's the restrictions on freedom of movement. But when we reflected on our work, there was an increasing sense that while we had documented critical abuses in certain areas, we were failing to describe the underlying reality on the ground. Now, if I were to explain to a nine-year-old what's happening in Israel-Palestine in 30 seconds, I would say the following, that one government primarily rules over the area between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, the Israeli government. There are two groups of roughly equal size that live in that area, Jewish Israelis and Palestinians. And that government's policy has been methodically to privilege Jewish Israelis and to oppress Palestinians at different degrees of intensity. Now, that simple three-sentence summary of what's happening in Israel-Palestine, of course, there are many nuances, there are many complexities, it flies in the face, fundamentally, of how Israel-Palestine are discussed in many forums, including, I expect, at this university. Given that disconnect, we asked a different research question when we embarked on this particular report. The research question, again, many of you are, you're, you're an academic university, so let me ask it as a research question. How does Israel treat Palestinians? So we embarked on a two-year research project to better understand the answer to that question. So what did we do? We did case studies. So we compared the treatment of Jewish Israelis and Palestinians who largely live in segregated communities, by the way, in the West Bank, in East Jerusalem, in Israel, and in Gaza. So we did these detailed case studies. But then to supplement that research, we actually analyzed 30 years of Human Rights Watch's research on human rights abuses in Israel-Palestine. So we aggregated statistics, we analyzed trends, and we looked beyond our own method research. We actually looked at the research of Palestinian, Israeli, other international organizations. So we established this massive uh, sort of p uh, collection of data and information, plus the case studies. So then I wrote a report. I wrote a 200-plus page report documenting how Israel treats Palestinians. And by the way, I should note, we didn't just look at those sources. We also looked at the Israeli government justifications for this policy. We looked at policy planning documents. We looked at statements of Israeli officials. We sought to meet the Israeli government to discuss their perspective. They declined uh, that invitation. And then, after we had done that, step two was to apply the law. So I know I'm not speaking at a law school, but I want to say a bit about the law because Human Rights Watch, our mandate is international human rights and humanitarian law primarily. So any starting point for research for us has to be the law. So um, our legal department conducted research on what are the standards under the law for cases of severe discriminatory oppression. Now there is a prohibition under international law. It has the highest status of international law against severe discrimination and oppression. And there's a term for it. That term is apartheid. So while the term was coined in relation to a particular historical, historical events in southern Africa, international treaties 
including the International Covenant on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, define apartheid as a universal legal term. If there's nothing else you take away from my talk, take away from it that the activists from South Africa and Southern Africa more generally, back from the 1970s, fought to make this a recognized legal concept to prevent it from happening again. Apartheid is also a crime against humanity, with a definition set out not only in the 1973 Convention on the Suppression of the Crime of Apartheid, but it's also one of 11 crimes against humanity set out under the Rome Statute that created the International Criminal Court. Many of you might know, even if you haven't studied law, you've watched a, a legal TV show, you know that crimes usually have three elements, right? You have an act, you have a mens rea, an intent or a policy, and you have a context. That's how you define a crime. Apartheid is no different as a crime. Basically, we're talking about severe abuses, things like mass land expropriation, things like forcible transfer on a mass scale, etc. Now, these acts must take place in the context of systematic oppression by one group of people over another. So to have apartheid, you need severe abuses that take place in the context where there is a regime or system of systematic oppression by one group over the other. Thirdly, you need those acts to take place with the intent by the perpetrator to maintain the regime or system of domination. So let me take a step back. Intent to dominate, systematic oppression, inhumane acts. That's what you need legally to find apartheid. Let me note parenthetically, I don't have time to go into it in my presentation, that there is a second related crime against humanity called persecution. Very similar definition, basically severe abuses of fundamental rights when they are carried out with a discriminatory intent. So I laid out our methodology and I laid out the law. So when Human Rights Watch applied the law to the facts that we documented, we concluded that Israeli authorities are committing the crimes against humanity of apartheid and persecution against Palestinians. So how did we reach that, that determination? Let me get into the bulk of my presentation. I want to walk through those three elements I laid out and the ways in which we reached that particular determination. So let me walk through them one by one, and then I'll step back and conclude my remarks. So the first one, let's start with the intent to dominate. Based on our research, Human Rights Watch concluded that Israeli authorities have pursued an intent or a policy to maintain the domination by Jewish Israelis over Palestinians across Israel and Palestine. Now, our research shows that this largely manifests through the desire to control land and demographics for the benefit of Jewish Israelis and to the detriment of Palestinians. Or to put it much more simply, the Israeli government has applied and followed the maxim of maximum land, minimum Palestinians. So let me say a word about demographics. I think ultimately, understanding this is the key to understanding modern Israeli policy. So to give you one example, the Israeli government since 2003 has prohibited the granting of long-term legal status to Palestinians from the West Bank and Gaza who are married to Israeli citizens or nationals or residents. Much more simply, Israelis can marry people from basically anywhere in the world and give them legal status to live with them in Israel, but not 
Palestinians from the West Bank and Gaza. Now, our research, we looked at the debate in the Knesset at the time. We reviewed statements by Israeli government officials from all political parties, and all of them are quite explicit, even in their statement, that this was done to maintain Jewish demographic majority. That's why that prohibition exists. It's not unique to that. There are many other examples. Let me give the most, maybe the most egregious or the most clear-cut example. Today, a Jewish American who's never been to Israel can get on a plane. Maybe they live in Denver. They can get on a plane tomorrow, go to Israel. They can live there and become a citizen automatically. While a Palestinian who's been languishing for 75 years in a refugee camp with a key to their home with generations there cannot do so because they're Palestinian, not Jewish. This is clearly done by Israeli government admission for demographic reasons. Now, the second part to this, besides demographics, is land. So our research shows that Israeli policy has sought to maximize the land available to Jewish Israelis and confine Palestinians into dense enclaves. Again, let me give you some examples. There is a formal Israeli government policy, and I put this in quotes, to Judaize the Negev and the Galilee. These are regions that make up two-thirds the land in Israel proper. In fact, if you read the Israeli newspaper today, you're going to find out that one government ministry is holding up the discussions on a new Israeli budget because there's not enough money to Judaize the Negev and the Galilee. This isn't just words on paper. There are laws based on it. Let me give you one example. Do folks in this room know that Israeli law authorizes different cities and towns to have admissions committees to decide who to live there and can decide to deny Palestinians living there? And in fact, a professor at an Israeli university found that there are 900 small Jewish towns and communities that have zero Palestinians living there. It's not just in the Negev and the Galilee. In Jerusalem, which encompasses occupied East Jerusalem, the municipality, as Israel drew the lines, and West Jerusalem, in the government policy documents, which we quote in our report, it lays out its objective, the objective of the municipality, which is to maintain, quote, a solid Jewish majority in the city. The plan even identifies target demographic ratios that they hope to maintain between uh, Jewish Israelis and between uh, uh, Palestinians. And the same policy is in place in the West Bank. We quote from the Drobel's plans of the West Bank in the, in the report, which literally lays out in plain letter terms that the government policy in this particular area is, is and I quote, to uh, make it hard for Palestinians to create territorial continuity and political unity and remove any trace of doubt about our intent to control Judea and Samaria forever. This is a quote from a government, basically a government plan. And again, it's not just words on paper. They're backed up by years, decades of government policy to expand settlements and the infrastructure connecting it to Israel proper. Even in Gaza, in Gaza, you have 2.1 million Palestinians living in a 25-by-7-mile strip of land. Israel in 2005 removed its settler population and actually removed ground troops. They still maintain control in other ways. But our research of nearly two decades, 18 years of Israeli government policy, shows that basically what the Israeli government sought to do was to gerrymander, right? To basically turn Gaza into a, a receptacle for holding Palestinians that are off the demographic books in Israel and the West Bank, which Israel hopes to retain long term. And we show how we reach this conclusion based on who is allowed to move where 
and you can see the report for more details. People are generally not allowed to move anywhere, but where they are, they can move from the West Bank to Gaza, but not the other way around, done for demographic reasons. Last point I'll make on the intent to dominate. The Israeli government, of course, does face legitimate security considerations, right? But it's important to note that the abuse is at the heart of apartheid, whether it's denying building permits to Palestinians, but giving it to settlers living in Israeli settlements, whether it's the 2003 law I mentioned, you know, whether it's the land expropriation, has not even offered security justification. And even where security is a consideration, take, for example, the Gaza policy I mentioned, where there is concerns around the presence of Hamas and Palestinian armed groups, the Israeli government policy goes so beyond what international law authorizes that it no more justifies apartheid and persecution than it would justify torture to say we did it for security reasons or other grave crimes. Okay, so we finish the intent to dominate. That's how we reach that conclusion. Again, I'm summarizing dozens of pages of research in you know, a few minutes. Part two, so we have an intent to dominate. Do we have systematic oppression? I'm working my way backwards from the way I laid out the element. We reached the conclusion, yes, there is systematic oppression of Palestinians. So let me walk through the different domains of Israeli control. Let's start with the West Bank. In the West Bank, I'm excluding East Jerusalem, which is part of the West Bank for a second. You have 2.7 million Palestinians living among, let's say, between four and 500,000 Jewish Israeli settlers. They are governed under different bodies of law. They might live across the street, but different bodies of law. So a Jewish Israeli is governed under Israeli civil law. A Palestinian is governed under draconian military law. What does that mean? If a Jewish Israeli and a Palestinian who could live across the street commit the very same criminal act, they're tried in different courts, they receive different due process, or if I want to be more specific, one receives due process, Jewish, Israeli, the Palestinian does not, and they receive different sentences for the very same act. It's not just about uh, you know, dual legal regimes. On top of that, you have a situation in which Israel enforces segregation. Settlements, which are built on Palestinian land that's been stolen, I'll get to that in a minute. Palestinians cannot even enter settlements, except if they're a laborer that has a special permit that allows them in. Not only that, the Israeli government not only has usurped the land and resources of the West Bank, but when it, and it controls both populations, but when it gives that land back, land and resources to civilians, the vast majority goes to Jewish Israelis living in settlements. Let me note parenthetically, settlements are a war crime because the Fourth Geneva Convention prohibits the acquisition of territory by force. Uh, hello, Ukraine, Russia, right? So, but yet the Israeli government is using those settlements and actually giving government data, Israeli government data, 99% of the land given for civilian use in the West Bank has gone to settlements, not to Palestinians who are from there. What about East Jerusalem? One domain is West Bank. Many of the same dynamics apply. So for example, let's say a Jewish Israeli and a Palestinian come to study here in Denver for university, right? They spend four years. The Jewish Israeli can go back to Jerusalem maintain their same status as a citizen, their same residency, their same rights. A Palestinian, who, by the way, is largely most Palestinian Jerusalemites, are stateless. They are given the status of resident, right, even though this is the place that they're from for generations, could lose their right to live in their native city solely because they were abroad for too long. The Israeli government applies a different policy to Palestinians versus Jewish Israelis when it comes to legal residency status. There are many other examples. Let's move to Gaza, right? The third domain of Israeli control. In Gaza, which I just told you about the policy, 
For 16 years, the Israeli government has imposed a generalized ban on the movement of people or goods. It's a closure policy. Nobody in, nobody out, unless you fall within a narrow band of humanitarian exemptions. So most of the population of Gaza has never left the 25 by 7 mile Gaza Strip. This is not some abstract principle. I manage a colleague for Human Rights Watch who lives in Gaza, who never left that Gaza until she was 31. And we did it because we pulled all sorts of cards and connections to get her out for a short visit before she went back. Now, again, this is not a security policy. It's a blanket ban on everybody, right? So somebody, for example, could be allowed out one day. My colleague, you know, might be allowed out one day for, because she fits within a humanitarian exemption, right? Let's say somebody needs a life-saving surgery and Israelis grant them a permit. But the next week, if they want to travel to study, study somewhere or for vacation, God forbid, they could be denied, not because they're a security threat, but because of some arbitrary policy. It's not just, to, by the way, about people, also the movement of goods. Most people don't realize that most exports are not allowed out of Gaza. Even most fruits and vegetables, or they allow one fruit but not one other fruit. Again, it's not because one fruit is more dangerous than the other. It's because it is a blanket policy that's largely meant to affect the civilian population. And it affects Gaza's economy. 80% of Gaza's population relies on humanitarian aid. The majority of families spend the majority of their day without active electricity, whereas Jewish Israelis living kilometers away have 24-7 electricity. Gaza has been an active case of de-development. Its GDP per capita has gone down since early 1990s. By the way, this is not some backwater. Gaza is like a very sophisticated, high-rise buildings, well-educated population that's being deprived of their basic rights. And fourth and final domain is Israel proper, where although Palestinians inside Israel are technically citizens of Israel that vote in elections, they're not nationals of Israel. So what that means is in 2018, Israel passed the Jewish nation state law, which says that Israel is the nation state of the Jewish people. And that law reserves certain rights only for Jews, including the right to self-determination, right? Or settlement, land being just, and there are many examples. The most dramatic example being in the, in the Nakab or the Negev region of Israel where there are 90,000 Palestinian Bedouin who are living in communities that are not recognized by the Israeli government. They are subject to home demolitions. They don't receive basic services. They're not con connected to the electricity and water grids. Doesn't happen for Jewish Israeli communities uh, living in Israel proper. What does all this add up together? Systematic oppression. So we reach the conclusion that we have systematic oppression. So we've just listed two of the three elements. So what's the final one? Have there been inhuman or inhumane acts carried out against Palestinians? Unfortunately, we reached the conclusion that yes, there have been. Our report focuses on five clusters of inhumane acts. Uh, these are not an exhaustive list. This is what Amnesty International, other groups have found different ones, but this is what we found. Let me just briefly mention them. We've covered some of them. One, the movement restrictions. I mentioned the closure of Gaza. Even in the West Bank, though, Palestinians require a very difficult to obtain permit to enter large parts of the West Bank. So again, using the analogy of this room, probably virtually everybody in this room, myself excluded because I was deported by the Israeli government, could get on a plane today and go to uh, Israel get, and can go to East Jerusalem. 
can go to the old city of East Jerusalem. Palestinians who have lived their entire lives in the West Bank cannot go sometimes three kilometers to East Jerusalem without a very difficult to obtain permit from the Israeli army. Again, Jewish Israelis don't need permits. Beyond that, the Israeli government has built nearly 600 checkpoints and other closure obstacles spread around the West Bank that can turn a routine commute to school, to work, into an hours-long humiliating ordeal. On top of that, the Israeli government has built a separation barrier, largely on Palestinian land in the West Bank, which separates thousands of Palestinians from their farmlands, from hospitals, from schools, from their larger communities. Put it all together, Gaza closure, all the things I just said about the West Bank, we found this constitutes an inhumane act of sweeping restrictions without justification on the freedom of movement. Second inhumane act that we documented is land expropriation. Again, I mentioned this in brief, but more than two million dunams of land, more than one third of the West Bank, has been taken from Palestinians using a variety of different legal tools. Our report goes into excruciating detail about each legal mechanism to explain the ways in which the Israeli government has stolen land from Palestinians to give it to um, settlements. It is also worth noting that this system of land expropriation has reduced Palestinians to living in what the Israeli human rights group B'Tselem describes 165 non-contiguous territorial islands. This is a result of the mass expropriation of Palestinian land. Again, this is turning Palestinians in their own territory out of their land. Inhumane act, mass land expropriation. Third, our report talks about the policies that make it effectively impossible for Palestinians to build homes in the majority of the West Bank that's under Israel's exclusive control, which is known as Area C, plus in East Jerusalem. According to Israeli government data, the Israeli government issued between 2016 and 2018 100 times more demolition orders than building permits for Palestinians living in the majority of the West Bank under Israel's exclusive control. As a result, every year the Israeli government demolishes hundreds of Palestinian homes, schools, and businesses for no other reason than they lack an impossible-to-get permit, which is not allowed under international law, which only allows demolitions in occupied territory for imperative reasons of security. Meanwhile, the illegal settlements continue to expand every day, every week, every month, every year. Um, this policy amounts to forcible transfer, Human Rights Watch and others have found, and is an inhumane act, one of those set out under the legal instruments. Final two inhumane acts, and I'll move towards wrapping up. Fourth, our report talks about the denial of residency and nationality rights to Palestinians. I gave you the example of East Jerusalem a second ago, but even in the West Bank and Gaza, more than half a million Palestinians have lost their ability to live in their homes and the occupied territory because they were abroad for too long, between 1967 and the mid-1990s, or because they weren't there when the occupation began in 1967. Plus, in Jerusalem, nearly 15,000 suffered the fate I mentioned. The Israeli government found they did not maintain sufficient connection or center of life in Jerusalem and revoked their residency rights in their native city. And fifth and finally, the report talks about the mass suspension of civil rights for the 4.7, nearly 5 million Palestinians in the West Bank or Gaza. This gathering, if we were to have this exact gathering in Bethlehem, Ramallah, or in Nablus, would be unlawful because you need a permit from the Israeli army for Palestinians as more than 10 people to gather. If you don't have that permit, people can be jailed for 10 years. 
So this is not some new law. 55 years, 56 years in June, this has been the law. Also around free assembly, Israel recently outlawed six prominent Palestinian human rights organizations, some of whom partner with Human Rights Watch. Freedom of, uh, of expression, people jailed for mere opposition to Israeli rule. So inhumane acts, systematic oppression, intent to dominate. Let me, as I move towards wrapping up, just say a few, a few things, right? This is the most stark assessment Human Rights Watch has ever reached on the conduct of Israeli authorities. But it's not the only place where we've reached this kind of determination. Human Rights Watch found that the treatment of the Rohingya in Myanmar constitutes apartheid and persecution. We found that the treatment of the Uyghurs in China amounts to crimes against humanity, including persecution. Our recommendations in the report are consistent with where we've made these kind of findings on the place. Again, I found crimes against humanity myself in Egypt in the killings of protesters. Colleagues, we found even that the PA and Hamas arbitrary arrest of distance uh, and torture may amount to crimes against humanity. So our recommendations for, in the report are very similar to where we reached those conclusions elsewhere. Basically, hold perpetrators to account and ensure no complicity in these crimes. So I'll just give you six specific re key recommendations from the report. One is to recognize the reality of apartheid for states to issue statements recognizing it's the reality for millions of Palestinians. Secondly, we call for the UN to take action. We call for the UN to establish uh, a special envoy to, for, for the crimes of apartheid persecution universally. We call on the International Criminal Court to investigate and prosecute those Israeli officials implicated in the crime, as well as for courts around the world to do so under the principle of universal jurisdiction. We call for targeted sanctions, including asset freezes and travel bans against those Israeli officials implicated in these, in these crimes. And we call for uh, the U.S. And, and other states, so long as apartheid persists, to suspend military and security assistance to the Israeli government. And we call for all businesses, all other actors, all states to evaluate all forms of engagement with Israel to mitigate human rights impact and to end those activities where it cannot ensure it's not complicit in apartheid and persecution. So these asks boil down to the following few points, which is where I'll move towards ending my remarks. First, a 55-year occupation, now 56-year occupation, is not temporary. Denying millions of Palestinians their fundamental rights solely because of who they are solely because they were born Palestinian and not Jewish, is not simply a matter of an abusive occupation. A 30-plus year stalled peace process alone will not dismantle systematic repression. Democracy is, and I'm quoting now my friend Hagai Ad. he's the executive director of Bet Salem. He wrote once that democracy is, quote, the rule of the people not the rule of one people over another. A daily reality of structural violence and repression, a single system methodically engineered to privilege one people at the expense of another is not a conflict between two equal parties. The first step to solving a problem is to diagnose it correctly, right? The wrong diagnosis leads to the wrong recommendations, the wrong way forward. Apartheid 
is not some hypothetical future solution. It might not even have been a hypothetical future solution in the mid-1970s when then-Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin warned about the prospect of apartheid. It may not even have been a hypothetical in 2006 when Jimmy Carter, U.S. President, wrote a book, Palestine, Peace, Not Apartheid. It may not even have been a hypothetical in 2014 when then-Secretary of State John Kerry warned that apartheid was just around the corner. Apartheid is the lived reality for Palestinians. If, don't just take my word for it. Don't just take uh, Human Rights Watch's word. This is the consensus in the human rights movement. Amnesty International reached the same conclusion. The Israeli human rights organization, B'Tselem, not only B'Tselem, in December of this year, 27 Israeli human rights groups used the term apartheid to describe the treatment of Palestinians. So did the Harvard Law School, International Human Rights Clinic. So did several major UN experts. So did Palestinian civil society has been saying this for years and nobody listened. But forget human rights groups. Even beyond human rights groups, more and more officials are saying the same thing. The former UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, Lawrence Tribe, the professor at Harvard, prominent commentators including at MSNBC, and even in Israel, the former, two former Israeli ambassadors to South Africa, one of whom was the former Director General of Israel's Foreign Ministry, uh, the former Attorney General and Deputy Attorney General, uh, current members of the Israeli Knesset, 120 Israeli law professors, uh, the most prominent ones in a statement issued a couple of months ago, all of whom have used the term apartheid. And now governments are doing the same, including South Africa and Namibia themselves, who every time they speak about Israel-Palestine at the UN, virtually every time, use the term apartheid. So as the entire African bloc, the entire Arab bloc, and the entire Organization of Islamic Conference at the UN. So as the former foreign minister of France and the current foreign minister of Luxembourg used referenced apartheid in relation to... I could go on for another 30 minutes listing people. The point of my, my remarks is the U.S. conversation is out of touch with the reality on the ground. We are at a moment of unprecedented challenge and, re and repression. It's a very difficult time. We just emerged from another round of hostilities in Israel-Palestine. Many of us want a better peace, a better future for Israelis and Palestinians. But whatever solution, whatever path you believe we should take, the first step is to recognize reality for what it is and bring to bear the sorts of tools necessary to end it. Thank you for your time. You were just listening to Uma Shakut on Israel-Palestine, a threshold crossed. He spoke in May at the University of Denver. Uma Shaker is the Israel-Palestine Director of Human Rights Watch. This program is produced by Alternative Radio. We're an independent nonprofit in our 37th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature such voices as Medea Benjamin, Noam Chomsky, Ilan Pape, and Chris Hedges. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To get copies of today's program, Uma Shakur on Israel-Palestine, A Threshold Crossed, and for Edward Said's book, Culture and Resistance, call us at 1-800-444-1977. That's one 800 444-1977 or go online our website alternativeradio.org 
That's alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free of charge. Just call us, 1-800-444-1977. Special thanks to Nader Hashemi and Sergio Atala. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamyan. Thank you for listening. We go out with the Palestinian ensemble El Fanun performing Farda. Mm-hmm.